<clears throat> Not quite as intimidating that way. Thank you, Paul. Beautifully, beautifully read. And that passage is so rich. Let's pray together. Father, we come um, empty-handed, and perhaps some of us come empty in our hearts and our souls, and we ask you to fill us up this morning. We ask you to, to empower us with the Spirit. We thank you for uh, this beautiful doctrine of the Trinity, of the Father, who is the creator and sustainer, our, your son, the savior, our savior. And we thank you for the spirit who empowers us and who forgives us and brings consolation and comfort when we need it. And so, Father, we are asking that, um, that the, the Trinity indwell this place this morning, that you use your word, use the music, the instruments, the camaraderie, the community, to build us up and uh, to keep us with our eyes focused in the right place, our eyes centered on you. And so, Father, we give this time to you, and, and, uh, and we confess with the psalmist that um, sometimes we think that you are nowhere to be found, uh, when in fact uh, you are uh, nearer than we are to ourselves, and you know us more deeply than we know ourselves. And so, Father, we give you permission to search our hearts, to search our souls. We give you the green light to go ahead and, and, uh, and transform us and change us in the ways that you want to change us, that uh, we do come away little by little, uh, more in the image of your Son, so that we can carry out the call that you've given us. And, Father, we do thank you for that call. We do thank you for that call that you have... Um, have uh, put on us and to uh, not only to call us to joy and to salvation and to love, but you have called us uh, to be uh, co-creators with you and uh, partners with you in what you want to do. And that we are part of something that uh, so is so immense, and yet you have chosen us individually and as well as a community. So Lord, we're asking that you take your word this morning and that you, uh, the one that we heard read, that you move in our hearts and that you change our minds and change our focus. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, it is good to be back. Uh, we, uh, we got back from vacation Sunday, last Sunday afternoon, and, and um, <clears throat> uh, it was kind of quiet. We got back, and I didn't even check my phone until Monday morning, and it was Monday morning that I received a message from uh, um, Amador Valle that Ila uh, uh, was not doing well. And we knew that she was sick, I knew that she was sick, and he asked if I could come and, and, and visit for a while, so I went out there Tuesday morning, and I was pretty well um, shocked at just how weak she had become, and uh, just how frail she looked, and if you... Those of you who know Ilda, frailty is probably not a word you would use to describe her. Um, but um, it was, I, I came back home and, and I told Sue, I said, this is going to be fast. I didn't know it would be this fast, but it was going to be fast. 
And uh, so Thursday morning then, I had received a, a call from Amador that Ila had passed on and uh, passed on to be with the Lord. And uh, the good thing was that, that she's no longer suffering because she was suffering quite a bit uh, when I saw her. It, it was, and so if um, I went on and to do Thursdays as normally a routine where I do a lot of studying in preparation for Sunday and if you saw the Connections letter, it was planned on starting Isaiah this Sunday. We were going to start Isaiah and kind of do some of the background headed into uh, Advent and look at verses, chapters 40 through 55, that great uh, messianic poems there, and we were going to look at that when we get to Advent. And uh, Thursday afternoon, I was working on Isaiah chapter 6, and then Thursday night, I just said, it was like the Lord says, uh, this is, Tommy, this is not what you need to hear. This is not what you need to be listening to. And uh, as rich as that passage is, uh, you need to think of something else. And, and I thought, I can't come on Sunday morning and preach out of Isaiah 6. I can't. And so that's not, Thursday night is not the time when you want to receive word like that <laughs> from the Lord. And so I kind of just sat there. I would go, what, um, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to, what to do from here. So um, I just kind of, felt like I needed to get on some firm ground and hear what the gospel was really all about and uh, why I do what I do, why we do what we do, why we are here this Sunday morning, why we uh, commune together. And I have always been um, drawn to Peter's answer to Jesus' question in John chapter 6, and that has stayed with me my whole Christian life. Um, and that, if you remember that passage, that's where, John, that's where Jesus feeds the multitude. And afterward, he is going to this long discourse about being the bread and the wine and uh, the bread of life. And he tells the people, the, big, the crowd there, and, the, and that they have to eat his body and drink his blood. Well, that sounds pretty repulsive for anybody, especially for Jews. And not really grasping what he was getting at, a lot of them left, and they just they walked out. And uh, Jesus asked the disciples, you remember the 12, he says, do you want to leave too? And Peter gives that great answer. He says, where are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. And that Peter's response has stuck with me, and it stuck with me Thursday night. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I need to look at Peter's letters and see what he has to say if, this is, if, if he is getting down to the core of the issue and it's been a while, frankly, since I've been in the, the epistles of Peter. So I open it up, and 1 Peter chapter 1, I mean, it is so incredibly rich. It is so full of, uh, of Christ-centered statements. And we could go for an hour on each verse at least, just picking it apart and understanding what he says. Don't worry, that's not my plan this morning, okay? But I spent the next three days reading 1 Peter chapter 1 over and over and over again. And I have a program on my phone now that I listen to. You can listen to the scripture. And I would sit there in the mornings and probably listen to it five or six times and just repeating it over and over again and just getting bathed in that chapter. And it is such a beautiful chapter. And it is so Christocentric. So I thought that's what we would look at this morning. Um, that um, what does... What does Peter say? What is the crux? What, is it gonna, what, take, what does it take to ground us back when things 
hit us as a body or hit us personally or hit us individually that we don't see coming, that we are a little blind, blindsided by. And so that's what I was going to do is look at, um, at 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, several years ago, uh, they were, uh, the Senate was doing a hearing for a couple of judges. One of them happened to be Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who now serves on the Supreme Court. But these two judges were being appointed to the federal courts. And they were doing the normal question and answer thing. And Dianne Feinstein, Senator Dianne Feinstein, was concerned about them, uh, both of them actually, being, being able to distinguish between their religious dogma and the law of the United States, and if they could see the difference between those two. And uh, she said, she told them, she says, I'm concerned. She says, the dogma lives loudly within you. And I thought about that statement, and I saved it, obviously, because it was several years ago. I saved it in my files, and, uh, and, I, and I thought about that statement, the dogma lives loudly within you. And uh, in one sense, Senator Feinstein's right. There is a difference between dogma and United States law. There's a lot of things in the United States of America that is legal that I am morally or ethically opposed to, that I object to. There's lots of things like that. Uh, but that's how society functions. But at the same time, if you're a Christian and the dogma does not live loudly within you, well, you're wrong. <laughs> You shouldn't. You should let the dogma, dogma live loudly within you. And really, everybody has dogma. And we may not admit it. And some people may be, you know, maybe non-religious people say don't like to use the word. And you may use a different word. But everybody does have these commitments, have these, these, uh, these values, these convictions that they live by that kind of guarantee or kind of govern their behavior. Everybody, everybody does. Uh, the exception of that might be college freshmen. Okay, I think they may, they may hit campus and nothing is, you know, all is fair game there, okay? But other than that, most people all have dogmas that we live by that govern our behavior. And at the same time, we all have to fudge a little just for society to function. I mean, we all have to, in our work or in our families or in our neighborhoods or whatever, we've always have to kind of fudge a little bit just so that we can work and be tolerant and... Um, you know, kind of get by. Now, if you have a job that's, you know, that, you're, that everything is, is, you know, unredeemable, that is totally against your values, then you might need to find a job. But for most of us, we kind of know how to get along in society. But basically, if there are some things, I believe, that if you are a Christian, the dogma should live loudly within us. And you may think of yourself as a tolerant person, but believe me, you do have a dogma. And if you are a Christian, it should live loudly within us. Everyone does. Everyone does. The big question is, what is our dogma? What should be that dogma? And for Peter, when I was looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, it is all about, for the Christian, the centrality of Christ, the centrality of Jesus. If you're a Christian... Everything has to be oriented around, the, around Christ as the center. Peter, in this first chapter, prioritizes him, his person, his work. He prioritizes love and peace and grace and hope. And this dogma should live loudly within our lives. The thing about Christian dogma, it, it really cannot be grasped objectively through rational arguments or rational 
proofs or, or things like that that Jesus think logically this follows A, follows B, follows C, therefore this is true, live with it, that kind of thing. It can't. It doesn't. Uh, many times, let's see, I don't think I'm on yet. Here we go. Many times, this is Winslow's painting of uh, Lost on the Grand Banks. And I have to tell you that there are many times where I have felt like that in my spiritual life. There are many times when I do feel like that in my spiritual life, that I am lost among the Grand Banks. And I don't know where I'm going, whether I still need to, where, am I, where I'm going to be, and how am I going to get through this. But we tend to think that the Christian dogma, the Christian life, the Christian truth can be obtained, defended uh, by rational arguments, and we put a lot in apologetics, and we have this idea that if I can just present the right arguments, then somebody will have to believe because they will have no choice. They will see the logic behind it and they will have to believe that it's just not true. But sometimes we think that, okay, once we're there, well, we need apologetics to sustain our faith so that we can continue believing. And I don't think that's true either. I think that misinterprets and misunderstands what faith is all about. We put a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of investment, especially with youth, to try to get them to understand these arguments, thinking that this will equip them to face the world. And I don't think that's true. Because the Christian truth has to be experienced. And you may say, oh, Tommy, that sounds mystical to me. Well, yes, it does. It is. It has to be lived. It has to be known in here. And all the arguments in the world cannot convince a person. Kierkegaard said this, if I wish to preserve myself in faith, then I must constantly be intent upon holding, holding fast the objective uncertainty so as to remain upon, out upon the deep, over 70,000 fathoms of water, still preserving my faith. In other words, he says he has to depend on the uncertainty to preserve his faith. Why? Because we're talking about trust and humility here. And when you think you've got all the arguments, you lose the humility and you lose the trust. But our faith is dependent on trust, not just logical, rational arguments. It is something that we know in our hearts. It is our something that we know by following Jesus Christ. I wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, I started, 20, maybe more than that now. I, got, I have gotten older, haven't I? Uh, 20, 25 years ago, I realized that um, this wasn't doing it. And I needed, I needed to experience Christ. That I, had it, I thought I could have it in my head and I could win anybody over and I loved to argue. And that I was all about the problems and the doctrines and the debates and the questions and and all that, and, if I, and I used to carry on these arguments, and you could ask my friends back in college that I loved to argue. And uh, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is, is I got to be a little bit more capable with the computer, especially using Zoom. And so I use Zoom to, now we talk with Katie and Pete, we play games together on Zoom, you know, even though they're across the ocean. But I also got contact with some old friends from college, and two guys that, um, two brothers, they're twins, that uh, were my best friends in, in college, and we ended up sharing a house when we got out of college. And Greg was at the seminary at Southern Methodist University, Perkins, and I was at Dallas, and we lived together, and we argued together. And, and I said, I called him, we got back together, we hadn't seen each other in years, so we got back together on Zoom, 
And one of the reasons I got back together, I told him, I said, Gary, Greg, I need to apologize for being such a jerk. Because I just knew that if I could just win the argument, that I could win the debate, then that would be all good and true. And don't get me wrong, I still fall in those, those habits. I still like to be right. And I still do that. But let me tell you, giving that up and giving up that defensive posture, it is so much more life-giving for me and for the person I'm attacking. <laughs> it is so much better, so much more life-giving than that. And so it has to be believed and true. Now, there are lots of questions that I still have, and there are lots of debates in my mind. And frankly, there are a lot of compelling arguments that tempt me to leave Christianity. And there are a lot of debates that I want to get involved in. And I think there are a lot of questions that are endlessly fascinating, and they're important questions. Uh, there are important problems, social problems, cultural problems, political problems, and doctrine in our society. But I'm still a Christian. And I still have hope. And because I don't know if I could find it anywhere else. Because I keep coming back to Peter's question, Peter's answer, where am I going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. I can't find it anywhere else. Anywhere else but here. So why do I allow the dogma to live loudly in my life? Why do I want the dogma to live loudly in my life? <clears throat> Well, I looked at 1 Peter, and I'm not going to go through verse by verse, but I just want to hit some themes that I think encapsulate in, verse, in chapter 1 this, the dogma that lives loudly within you. And the first of all, the universe was created with meaning and purpose. This is what I believe, first of all. There's, there's six of them. And the first one that, that, that draws me in is that I believe that the universe was created with meaning and purpose. Uh, how? I, I don't know. And it really doesn't matter to me how. Uh, I do know that if it was the Big Bang, the Big Bang is not the same thing as the big mistake. It was a Big Bang because we have a creator. Because he designed it. In the, in the world, I, I see patterns. I see uh, purposeful movements. I see intangibles. You know, things that exist like beauty and love. I see those things, and I have to conclude that there's some powerful force behind this. And we call that powerful force God, the force who has a personality, that the universe was created with meaning and purpose. The second thing, the dogma that lives loudly within me, is that sin is a reality, and it is pervasive. It is a reality in our world. It is pervasive in our world. It is a reality in my soul, and it is pervasive in each one of us. And that is for real, uh, all of us. And you go through First uh, Peter, and he talks about the suffering and the pain. He ends after this prelude in the first chapter. He begins chapter 1. He says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. He doesn't ignore it, and he reckons with it. Where we try to maybe think if we just ignore it or don't make a big deal out of it, it'll go away. But it is real and it is pervasive. And God doesn't ignore it. 
He didn't let, make good creation, make the creation and call it good. And then, then when we messed up and decided we wanted to run the show ourselves, he didn't throw it in the trash heap and said, okay, well, good enough. I'm going to scrap this and start all over again. He began this plan from long ago. He wanted to redeem us. He wanted to restore us. He's going to make something new. And Peter here allows God to be God, to let him do what is good. And what he wants to do is reconcile us through the love of Jesus. So yes, the, creation, the universe is created with intent and purpose, but sin is a reality and it is pervasive. But I also believe that love is a significant and powerful force in the universe. That this is incredibly powerful for, and when I say love is this incredibly significant and powerful force, I'm not talking about mere sentiment. You know, mere gushy feelings, and I'm not talking about some evolutionary blip. Uh, you'll see some evolutionists will say that, that uh, we developed this, this need for love, to love and be loved, because it was somehow was a continuation of the species. And this, is, this was an evolutionary trait that, that developed. And yes, there are some practical benefits to love, definitely. But there are also things where love doesn't make sense. Where, where we end up sacrificing our own good. Sometimes people even sacrifice their lives for the benefit of others. That doesn't make sense. That love comes from someplace else. That it, is, it, is, it comes out of a, a relationship because love, by definition, has to have a relationship. God is not some tinkerer who decided to nail, nail a few worlds together or... or, or um, cobble together some human creature just because he can. He did it out of love. And I believe that is a very real force. It's every bit as real a force as gravity is. It's every bit as real a force as a movement is. Whatever movement you're, force you're talking about in physics, love is just as real as that. We don't see gravity, but we know its effect. We don't see love, but we know its, an effect. We know its effect. It never leaves us in despair. The Bible never leaves us in that point of despair. It always brings us back to love. And verse 8, to me, is the hinge of this whole chapter. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have, even though you do not see him now, you trust in him, and he has filled you with inexpressible and glorious joy. I think that is the hinge of the whole thing. And the Bible always takes us back to this. Always, even in times of judgment, it always comes back to this. It comes with the rainbow after the flood. It comes with the prophets who, who pronounce judgment because of idolatry, but he always brings them back as if he was married to an unfaithful woman. It always brings us back to love. The psalmist may start out complaining and, and challenging God and all these things, but it always ends with trust in God. And then you go into the New Testament with Jesus and the healing and the New Testament, and it ends and it ends with the beautiful picture of the restoration of creation. It always, always goes back to love. And, and I really feel bad for you if you grew up or have experience with people who use Bible, the Bible as a weapon on you or have used the Bible to terrorize you. I feel sorry for you because that is a total misuse of the scriptures. It always, always comes back to the love of God. That is the whole point. 
I also believe that Christ's death provides a unique and powerful response to the power of sin and suffering. That his love in the death of Christ is a unique and moving response to the pain and evil. And I think the Trinity is this unique idea that, that in Christ's death, he has a, uh, it is a moving response because he actually participates in our suffering. He knows what it's like to be God-forsaken. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be hopeless. He experiences that with us. And that is an incredible thing. That is an incredibly profound way to respond to our suffering, that God has suffered as we do. But because he has suffered as we do, we know that life defeats death, that love is stronger than hate. And the cross is the only way that that prevails and that is the only way of dealing with humankind and the broken world that we live in. The cross is the center of our faith. It is the dogma that we live loudly. And if we dismiss the cross, we, dismiss, we make it void of any power or any wisdom that it might have. And I think a lot of times today, people don't want to hear a lot about the cross. And we pretty much only... I only preach on it usually around Holy Week, unfortunately. But the cross is sinner, and a lot of people don't want to hear about that. They don't want to hear about a Savior who was nailed to a piece of wood. And if we do see it, we, we, we minimize it. And there's so many ways we can minimize it, but two surefire, way, surefire ways we minimize it is one way is we intellectualize it. And if you've ever sat through an introductory theology class or whatever, you, that's where people just talk about the soteriological value of the cross. And they talk about theories of atonement, the, penal, the substitutionary penal atonement, the Christus Vixus, a victor atonement, the, the moral theory. And they discuss so really exactly how did the cross work and, and we intellectualize it and that's all great and good, but it then becomes just an exercise in our minds. Or other people want to hear it just because they don't want to hear the cross. They'd rather talk about social justice or they want to talk about uh, social rights or issues. They want to talk about um, that our, our religious freedom or religious liberty is more important, whatever these are, and the cross just kind of falls by the wayside. And I call that accessorizing the cross. That we can intellectualize the cross and just talk about its its, its intellectual value and how it works and maybe theorize how it works or we can just accessorize it and we just tack it on to things that we think needs to go on and we make it Christian by putting a cross on it. You can put a, a cross on a bumper sticker and that makes, your, it makes that whatever you're advertising Christian, whether it is or not. You can carry it to, uh, to a rally. You can carry it to, uh, to, to protest racism. A lot of things that, that are good things. I'm not saying they're not good things. But it's an accessorizing the cross for our own agenda. I, I can take you to the Basilica in Mexico City, which is where the legend is that Virgin Mary appeared to Juan Diego. And uh, uh, around the, the courtyard of the churches are nothing but boobs that are selling images of the Virgin, but also a bunch of crucifixes. And so you can take them and decorate your home with them. Or you can wear them on your neck. And, and that's, I'm not saying those are bad. I'm just saying that the more we, we populate the crucifix, it seems like the less meaningful it becomes. 
and we just accessorize it. It's just an accessory to whatever else we're caught up in. But this is the center. This is the center of our faith. This is it. There are other faiths, other faiths who talk about God being love and forgiving, and that's all good. But Christianity is the only one who says God experienced our suffering and pain. That he experienced our forgiveness and the need to forgive. That's the only one. That's why the Christianity is unique. That's why Christ's death provides a unique and powerful response to the problem of sin and suffering because he experienced it himself. But death does not have the final word. I also believe in the resurrection. That's also grounded in me. But not only do I believe in the resurrection, I believe that resurrection is, is, uh, is interwoven throughout creation. That dark turns to night and pain turns to, to joy and sickness turns to healing. That we are restored and renewed. That it does not depend on my doctrinal arguments or my doctrinal certainty or my doctrinal boundaries. It doesn't depend that on who I can decide who's in and who's out. It doesn't depend on any of that. If it did, it wouldn't be hope and faith wouldn't be faith. But Christ rose and death no longer has the final word. And that is all through Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. That is our, our hope. That death doesn't have the final word. And the last one I want to mention is that we have a part to play in the story. Peter is very clear that we have a part to, to play. Again, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you trust him. And the result of his inexpressible and glorious joy. And he goes on to say, he says, we have this inheritance that's been guarded for us in God's realm. And it will be revealed for us. And we have a part to play. And this story began long before the New Testament. Because Peter says that the angels knew about it. And they waited, to, waited for the fulfillment. He says the prophets prophesied for it. And they did it and they sacrificed and some of them died for us. And now it's our turn. We have a role to play in this story. We have a role to play for the next generation that comes along. He says we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And that word is actually in the the receiving is, is a present participle, meaning that it's started now and it's going on now. In other words, he is making us new now. That we are now receiving the salvation of our souls. And he says if you stay in, in your selfishness and your sin and your self-absorption, then you're basically your true self begins to shrivel up. But in him it starts to be, it starts to be the salvation of our alma, our lives, our souls. And it's a new creation. We talk a lot about being broken. I talk about, I use that language a lot, about being broken, about us being broken, being broken in the world. 
But the problem with that is that we assume that then if we're broken, the solution is to be fixed. But God is not interested in just fixing us. He is making us new. He is making us a new creation. And that's different. That goes beyond just fixing. Uh, Sue's reading a book right now called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making by a, a Japanese Christian artist named, uh, if I get his name right, uh, Makoto Fujimura, I think is his name. And I heard him on a podcast, and he's, he's brilliant, brilliant guy. And he has some great things to say about the new creation. And he says, we, every artist knows that art begins with the destruction, with brokenness, before it can be made new. And he talks about the minerals and the paints that he uses that he can only get in Tokyo. And he says it's a, it's a weeks, weeks long, months long process of taking minerals and elements and breaking them down and pulverizing them before he can take them and make something new. And he said that's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. That sometimes he says literally, I'll, I'll quote him, every artist recognizes that the work must be broken down to be made new again. Minerals must be pulverized. And he said that's where we are. We are broken, but not to be fixed, but to make something completely new and wonderful and beautiful. That's forgiveness. He tells a story in the same book. He tells a story about um, a tribal lord who was celebrating, in ancient, ancient times, was celebrating the Japanese tea, tea ceremony. And one of the young servants broke a cup. And the guy over him started to beat him. And the, and the tribal lord said, don't beat him. Don't punish the boy. Just give me the cup. So he took the cup and he repaired it. And he repaired it using gold. So he had this cup with these gold streaks through it, and it was more beautiful than the cup originally existed. And he says that's what God does with us. He repairs us with gold. He recreates us, and we end up more beautiful, more true than ever before. And they, that tradition still carries on in Japanese art. We happen to see that down at the um, Japanese garden here in Portland not too long ago, well, before post-pandemic anyway, where they had an exposition of this kind of art, where they broke things and repaired them and they were more beautiful than they started. And we know every morning we wake up to a world that's bathed in grace to make us new. So these are the things that ground me. I can't explain them all. I can't uh, defend them all. Uh, but I just believe them. They are the reasons that I am still a Christian in spite of it all. In spite of the world, in spite of the shape of the American church these days, in spite of having a death in our church family, I still believe these things. This is the dogma that lives loudly within me. Uh, politics uh, cannot save us. From the emptiness. Politics cannot save us from a lack of meaning. Politics cannot save us from an absence of purpose in our lives. It just can't. Uh, currency cannot save us. Twice in this passage, Peter mentions gold. He said, first of all, your faith is more valuable than that. And second of all, you weren't ransomed with gold. When you, buy, when you, when you get somebody ransomed, you don't pay the father who's had their child kidnapped. You pay the kidnapper. 
Well, he says, you weren't ransomed with gold. You weren't paid with gold. You're ransomed with the very precious blood of Jesus. And our currency, our dollars cannot save us from our need for God. Our currency cannot save us from our need of healing. Our currency cannot save us from the bitterness that divides us today. It can't. Our acquisitions cannot save us. We still have a need to worship. We still have a demands of our faith. We still have the need to care for our neighbors. Acquisitions cannot save us from that. Education cannot save us from those things. It cannot save us from the need to care for those who have suffered loss, uh, those who have suffered injury or injustice. Our lives involve so much more than these things. All these things like that the politics, the currency, the acquisition, the gold, the education, all these things, they're not, I'm not saying they're not important. They're just downstream. They're just downstream from our hearts. This is the dogma that we live loudly. It involves so much more. When those other things replace this dogma, when those other dogmas replace the dogma that lives loudly within us, all that becomes is our own Tower of Babel that we build up to the sky and the only thing that it proclaims, the only thing that it announces is our pride, our arrogance, and our spiritual bankruptcy. 1 Peter 1 summarizes it all together. This is the dogma that lives loudly within you. And if it's not living loudly within you, it should. It should live loudly within you. Paul says the dogma that lives loudly within us is Christ and him crucified. Actually, he didn't say it exactly like that. He said, I know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the salvation and the hope that we have in Jesus. We are so thankful for the inheritance that's been guarded for us all this time. We, 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 we confess that we get uncertain that we ride the seas of uncertainty, but I can't think of any place else to find hope but in you. And so we do, in Jesus' name, amen.